Welcome back. We are a little off topic today because my guest is not a marathoner, but he is one of the world's all-time best distance runners. So I couldn't pass up the chance to have him on the show and hear him tell some stories. In 1967, Marty LaCourie became the third American high schooler to break four minutes in the mile. One year later, between his freshman and sophomore years at Villanova, he made the team for the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City and became the youngest ever to advance to the 1,500-meter final at 19 years old. He went on to become ranked number one in the world in the 1,500 meters in 1969 and in 1971 and famously beat Jim Ryan in the Dream Mile in Philadelphia in 1971 with a personal best at the time of 3.54. Um, Two unfortunately timed injuries kept him out of the Olympics in 1972 and 76, but in 1975, he ran an all-time personal best in the mile, 3.52, and before the 1976 Olympic year, he decided to change his focus to the 5,000 meters where he felt he had the better chance to be the best in the world. And he would indeed become ranked number one in the world in the 5,000 in 1977. And he was ranked number two in the world in 1978. Also in 1977, he set the American record in the 5,000 at 1315. And then two weeks later, he beat his own record with a time of 1313. Um, To rewind a little bit, after college, uh, Marty moved to Gainesville, Florida to train with the Florida Track Club and Jimmy Carnes, who was his partner and co-founder of Athletic Attic, which at the time was basically the first retail store dedicated to running shoes. Um, He worked full-time with this business throughout his post-collegiate running career. He also did a lot of work as a commentator for track and field and also for Ironman events and also the New York City Marathon. He's written several books, uh, an autobiography called On the Run, um, Real Running, and Marty LaCourie's Guide for the Elite Runner. In more recent years, Marty has returned to his childhood interest in music and has made himself into a professional jazz guitarist where he uh, performs several nights a week. And he still lives in Gainesville, Florida to this day. All right, so that's the prepared bio. But just a little extra context. At the beginning of our conversation, Marty talks about the Millimans. Um, So I was introduced to Marty by my friend Jeff Milliman, who lives here in Greenville, South Carolina. And so Jeff and his brother Dave... uh, starting back in either the late 70s or early 80s, worked uh, for Marty um, at Athletic Attic. They both became um, different types of managers. Jeff um, was a store manager, then became uh, like a district manager running multiple stores, eventually bought the franchise in Columbia, South Carolina, before eventually ending up here in Greenville, where he owns the Greenville Running Company. Um, Dave also bought into some stores partnering with, um, Marty and Jimmy Carnes 
and also helped set up a lot of the franchises at different places across the country um, and lived in Gainesville and was friends with Marty there. Um, and also, episode one of this podcast is uh, my interview with Jeff Milliman. So if you want more of his story, um, there's a lot of extra background there. Um, but I just wanted to add that little piece of information so it's a little more clear at the beginning. I think that's enough, so let's go ahead and get started. Marty, first of all, thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, it's really great to be talking to you. Okay. Well, your connection with the Millmans helps. We can, <laughs> we can talk about them. Okay, sure. You know, when, um, when, uh, when Dave died, a lot of his stuff was in my warehouse. It was supposed to be there for a weekend, but it ended up being there for 10 years. And I never opened it or anything until after he died. And then I went in and I saw that there was a lot of uh, old, well, basically he never threw anything out in his life uh, about his running and all his writing and everything. But the one thing that came up and it said, it was a newspaper thing and it said Millman Brothers selling, having a horse auction or something like that. And I'm like, geez, I didn't know this about them. And then I, as I looked further, I could see it was probably their grandfather or somebody who were actually horse traders up in upstate New York. So, you know, I didn't want to throw that kind of stuff out. I had to really go through a lot of stuff carefully to, you know, not just throw stuff out. I'll have to ask Jeff about that because um, I knew he grew up on a lot of land and did some sort of farming or whatnot in upstate new york but right i didn't know about the horse angle yeah yeah but but I, obviously the it, you know i saw brothers but then it was probably his grandfather and his brother right do you have any siblings yeah i have a brother i have my next sibling i'm the oldest i have a sister and then a brother and another sister uh and my brother was a pretty good runner he went to boston college as a steeplechaser. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about your high school years because it seems like on paper there was a very sh a short window of time where you went from good, good at the state level to world class within a couple of years. So, um, and if I have this these figures right, it looks like your senior year, you went into that year with a 413 personal best, and then your first race of the year, you run a 404. So I guess two questions here. One, that big jump between junior and senior year, was there some sudden shift in training or something that you knew, like, I'm different this year, and versus just a kind of gradual culmination of your work? And then number two, at what point in high school or around those years did you realize that you were at the world-class level? Right. Okay. This is why it's so good to look back on these things 50 years back because <laughs> you've got it all wrong. Uh, you know, you're assuming a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw where you had 404. I didn't read that. You said it was 404, the first race of the year. So, why did I run 413 as a junior and then drop all the way down to 359 the next year? And that basically was because 
my junior year, I was hurt. I ran a 413 mile, uh, but I didn't really finish out the season. So I was probably a 408 miler or something like that in my junior year. And, uh, and then I did drop down to 404 at the pen relays. And that, that was pretty funny because it changed my life in a lot of ways. First off, I got the stick about 50 yards behind a guy from boys high, uh, Joe, uh, anyway. Uh, so I run the first lap and I, I think I ran about 58, but my coach standing by the side of the track yells 62 because he doesn't want me freaking out. So then I pass the half probably in like uh, 201 and he yells something like 205. But I'm catching this guy. So I ended up running 404, which is, as you say, that was like a nine-second improvement first race of the year, but also on a tartan track for the first time. Um, And the reason it changed my life, to answer one of your questions, is that when I ran 404, I realized, or the people around me, my coach, realized, no, you're something special. There'll be a lot of guys that can go to Harvard and become attorneys, but there's not a lot of guys that can probably run a four-minute mile in high school. So right around that time, I changed my decision to go to an unnamed Ivy League school and decided to go to Villanova and roll the dice uh, by going to a real, you know, running factory. Now, that said... 50 years of thinking about it, I would never recommend that to a young kid. <laughs> I would say the reason to, to run when you're young is to get a college scholarship and to go to the best college you can. Uh, if, if you were destined and all your siblings went to junior college, uh, maybe you're going to be the first one to go to the state school. Or maybe you're aimed for state school, but because of your running you're going to get to go to a top 10 university in the, in the world because uh, the odds of me actually doing what I did, I now know are, you know, like a million to one. So I would say most people should take the safe course and realize that their running is to help them for all the other things later in life and get the best education that you can. You know, this is an interesting point. Um, the decision to really go for the one in the million shot versus the safe path. And and whether it sounds like you didn't really have the same perspective then that it was a one in a million shot, but you know, at the time you made that decision to go for for it. Um, well, I never looked at it as uh, in that way at all, really. Uh Villanova was a pretty acceptable school and what it came down to, I ran 404, and the Ivy League is telling me, if you come to Harvard, Yale, Penn, whatever, you're going to be the first four-minute miler in the Ivy League. That was the wrong thing for them to say. What Jumbo Elliott said to me was, if you come to Villanova, you're going to be the fifth fastest guy on the team. And so I realized it would be a very boring four years to be the fastest guy in the Ivy League, and that I needed the challenge to you know, run uh, with other guys. But n- did I think I had a shot of ever becoming number one in the world and that kind of stuff? No, I never thought about that. But there were other factors. Villanova was within two hours of my home. 
Uh, I was close to my parents. Uh, so there were other reasons why I, I took it. I didn't really sit down and think about the odds of uh, really being great. You know, uh, I had an occasion where someone called me because their daughter had offers to go to Penn State and Princeton and Harvard and then some track schools. And I said, well, you got to look at it two ways. One, the odds of you devoting your life to running and becoming number one in the world are really small. And if you study what happens, especially with women, if you become number one in the world, it's not going to change your life much at all. It's not like you, you're going to the Super Bowl for $20 million a year. Whereas if you pass up a, a great education at a great institution, the people that you would have gone to school with will be be making documentaries, will be politicians, will be in Washington, D.C., helping run this country. So don't go to a lesser school because you think you're going to be the next Jim Ryan because the odds aren't that good. And Jim Ryan had to earn everything like a normal person once he stopped running. He had to become a congressman and, and earn a living. It wasn't like, um, I mean, let's say Tom Brady, not that he has any problems with money, but Tom Brady can spend the rest of his life just being Tom Brady and people will throw money at him. Okay, so your freshman year, you come in, say, fifth best guy on the team. But then during the course of your freshman year, was it ever, how clear was it that you would be contending for an Olympic spot, you know, the following summer? Yeah, not clear at all, because you have to remember in those days, this would be 1969, 68, really, freshmen weren't eligible. So I wasn't even in really any of the big races. I, in the pen relays, I ran on the freshman 4x400 relay. I didn't run in the NCAA um, you know, mile or anything. So it all came together for me between the, the first Olympic trials, which they had in June, and the last Olympic trials, uh, which they had uh, later in the year, like in September before the October Mexico Olympics. So I came along very quickly once uh, school got out. How how were you actually, what race qualified you for the trials? Well, what they did uh, was kind of a sham, but because for the, well, for two reasons. One, for some television money. They had a trials in L.A. in June. And they, this is a whole, you know, two-hour podcast, but they said that the winners of that trial would definitely be on the team. And uh, I forget, but they said the first 15 or so were going to go to Lake Tahoe and train at altitude for the summer and then have another trials at altitude to see who would be best to go to Mexico City. So I don't know where I finished in that first trials. I might have been sixth or 10th. I don't remember. And I go and, and I actually adapted to altitude training pretty well. Um, and so what happened, you know, to kind of keep the story short, Dave Patrick, who was the best guy on Villanova's team and was beating everybody all year and was supposed to definitely finish in the top three, uh, won the first trials and thought he was on the team. And then just weeks before the trials, in a move orchestrated by Bill Bowerman, uh, 
uh, it was voted that the first trials would not count and you had to finish in the top three. And so coming down the last straightaway, I'm there with Dave Patrick and edging him out. I make the team that I'm supposed to be too young to make. He doesn't make the team. He gets fourth. I get second. Um, and so a great injustice was done, but that's not the really the purpose for this call today. No, that these are the kind of details you don't really get, you know, other than at the source. So I mean, that's, I think that's exactly what we're here for. Yeah, but, I think uh, it took about 40 years for the real story about how Bill Bowerman orchestrated uh, things at uh, the training camp to uh, change the See, Dave had won the first trial, so he was detraining um, and hadn't been training hard, uh, wasn't prepared to run in the second trials. And then with, a, uh, uh, I don't remember if it was a couple of weeks or a couple of days notice, he bravely said, well, yeah, if I can't finish in the top three, I probably shouldn't go. And uh, he bowed to the pressure and my our coach uh, Jumbo Elliott had had a stroke, which we didn't know about. And this is one of the reasons why he didn't say, Hey, I'm getting some lawyers. You can't do this, uh, et cetera. Yeah. That's so interesting. History is always so much more complicated than what you can fit, you know, in a book or anything. Yeah. It's been very interesting, you know, because of Facebook and stuff like that to talk to guys that you ran against, um, who've had 30 years of, to rerun a certain race and find out what they were thinking at the time um, or not thinking, you know. Uh, so in retrospect, that's that's a great thing. I wanted to ask you about the transition from high school to college because it sounds like, for lack of a better word, you overachieved your freshman year or at least uh, surprised yourself and some other people. So what was the training transition like from high school to college? And I mean, how, at what point did people realize, okay, this guy is better than just fifth on the team or whatever? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. You could ask Dave Patrick. You can ask Charlie Messenger, you know, the guys who were training with me. My coach in high school uh, was Fred Dwyer, who had gone to Villanova himself and again, it probably took 30 years for me to realize this and put it all together. But Fred Dwyer, who was a four and eight tenths miler in uh, 1956 or so, was the person who bought, brought interval training to the United States. So in high school, I trained very hard and I was, and I was trained very smartly by someone who knew what he was doing and was on the cutting edge. Uh, so to answer your question, when I got to Villanova, I went from running maybe 80 miles a week with three times a week on the track doing intervals to 100 miles a week or 90. So that wasn't a big transition for me as far as the workload. So before college, you, you run your 359 as a high schooler. And I think if I have this right and you're that race, Jim Ryan set the world record at the time and you were say seventh or eighth place. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but again, looking back at it, number one, we had run, I had run four Oh eight the night before to qualify. Uh, number two, it's a dirt track. And, but the other thing that people forget, there was no pace setter. Jim Ryan took the pace 
himself from the gun. He had no pace setter. And he ran 51 seconds for the last lap. All of this on a dirt track with different types of spikes. Broke the world record at 351. But knowing what we know today about how much the tracks are worth, the, the you know, tartan and rubberized track, that was really probably worth 347 or 348. And it stood for a long, long time. And so, you know, Philbert Bailly did run a world record in the mile without a pace hitter. Uh, and he was the last one to do that. And that would have been like 1975. He, he broke Jim Ryan's record. But Ryan's race is just, you know, mind boggling when you look back at the history. Yeah. Well, as a as a kind of outsider trying to learn about this kind of thing, you see, you know, you look back and it seems like, oh, Marty LaCore, Jim Ryan, big rivalry there for a few years. But also it's funny how, um, you know, Jim Ryan set his world records when he was pretty young. And then um, after 72 or so, he's kind of uh, seemingly out of the scene. So it seems like you guys had a, you know, you go from him setting a world record and in the same race, you're six or seven places back to fast forward 1971. Um, the Philadelphia Dream Mile is, you know, seems like the peak of your rivalry sort of and and you beat him there. But it doesn't seem like a huge overlap between your two careers. But how do you look back and see your is rivalry even the right word to describe uh, your relationship with Jim Ryan? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I think it was a rivalry. Um, but in those days, you may only run against your rival uh, once or twice a year, three times. Uh, you know, when Kip Kano and I in uh, 69 were, you know, one and two in the world, I might have, you know, run against him one time. It, it's, it wasn't like today. There was no big circuit. But, you know, to go through those years I, I, on Jim's career, uh, so the first time we pretty much, well, we ran in that high school, I was in high school and he set the world mile. So I might as well have been in the stands on that one. Uh, and that would have been 67. Um, and then, uh, 68, we go to the Olympics, you know, Jim is totally getting screwed because the Olympics are at high altitude and, you know, he does an amazing job by getting the silver medal, but I'm you know, totally out of it. I'm just turned 19 years old and had a stress fracture for the race. But then you come back to 69 and that's when the rivalry started. We ran indoors in the mile and it went right down to the wire. The The spotlight followed me because they thought I won the race. Uh, but then they had no fin photo finish camera and they, they declared Ryan won the race which was interesting because when they were asked, why didn't you have the photo finish camera? They said, well, we just, we never dreamed it would be a close race with Jim Ryan. So we left it at the sprints and, you know, didn't, didn't move it. Um, but that would, that would be the last time that he beat me. That was 69. Um, and then in, uh, in, no, that would be yeah, 69. Yeah. And then I beat him for the first time at the NCAA in uh, Knoxville. The next week or so, we ran in the national championships, and he dropped out of the race, and I won it. And then 
at a young age, really, um, he took a year off or maybe it was two years. And the reason why that dream mile was such a big deal was because I had ascended to the number one ranking in 69 and Jim was making a comeback. So it was the, you know, old world record holder and, and the, the new guy. And it's very seldom, or I shouldn't say it's very seldom. It's pretty common in countries when there's one really good miler, another miler uh, emerges because of the person's influence. And uh, this happened with Seb, Seb Coe and Steve Ovett. It happened with Arnie Anderson and Gunter Haig with the Swedes in the, in the 40s chasing a world record. So, you know, a lot of my success had to do with the fact that Jim Ryan had uh, charted a path that I saw as maybe uh, achievable. Um, so it, w- it was that kind of rivalry. And then, you know, J- Jim was in good shape again in 76, got stepped on from behind. Again, politics was involved, and I'm not sure exactly how he, the process went uh, as far as trying to move him into the second round, which they would have done today. But in those days, it was like, okay, we have an American that we can screw right now. What's your vote? <laughs> and... So he was not passed on uh, to the next round as he as he should have been. You mentioned in there that there was no circuit to be on like there is today. Um, and then I read that Jim Ryan um, joined what seemed to be an experimental organization at the time, the ITA. And so can you maybe explain for those of us that are just not really familiar with how this works compared to today's system – like the relationship between the NCAA, the AAU, the ITA, um, and, you know, the Olympic cycle, how I mean, it's kind of confusing for us to figure out like what's what. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not even sure I can totally explain it, but in the beginning there was the Olympic committee who chose who got to go to the Olympics. And then there was a separate set of people, some of it o- overlapping called the amateur athletic union. And that in included all sports from girls, uh, gymnastics to track and field in this AAU. And one of the big things that happened was uh, in the 70s that the track and field people broke away and started what we now have today, the track and field. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the name is now. And my business partner and athletic addict, Jimmy Carnes, uh, was the first president of that association. So we got our own anonymity, but it was still, you know, very amateur. And the ITA was just, was the idea of an individual um, to have uh, a bunch of pro athletes that would barnstorm the country running races. And most of them were indoor races. They um, tried to be very innovative. Uh, they had pacer lights on the inside of the track. They had an announcer that, that, that roved down on the infield and spoke to the shot putters between throws. And, and that announcer was me. Uh, but we'll get back to that. So <clears throat> a lot of the big names in track signed contracts to belong to this circuit. It was almost like roller derby would have been, I guess. Um, 
but mostly the guys who signed were guys who didn't see because they were immediately going to be declared professional and not allowed to run in the Olympics anymore or any other uh, of the normal races. Uh, so you had people like Jim Ryan, Kip Kano, Ben Gipjo, who didn't foresee another Olympic Games in their future, signed up to do this. I did not because I felt that I still had a, a, limp, a, a chance in an Olympics and I was uh, convinced to become the announcer for that. Um, I probably was pretty bad at that too. I was about 23 years old, but it was a lot of fun. And we saw, I saw some great performances uh, from Ben Gipjo in particular, uh, who, who, you know, had set the pace for Kano in, in the Olympics. Uh, but he ran some great races on the ITA circuit and there was prize money based on how you finished. Yeah. You know that how Jim Ryan seemed to, before that he, t- he took a, whatever it was a year or two off or off the, you know, competitive running scene. And, at a seemingly young age, do you think that um, because in most cases there was no opportunity to earn a living if you also had Olympic aspirations, do you think it was more, much more common then than it is today to kind of cut your running career short for that reason? Um, because I was kind of thinking, if you look at the course of your career, it almost seems like you cut a little bit against the grain, keeping it going for so long, versus like where Jim Ryan cut it short. Yeah, that's a very perceptive comment. And I spoke with another guy a month or two ago, I mean, a younger guy, let's say he's under 30, trying to understand the sport. And one of the things he couldn't understand was, so you guys were running 100 miles a week and doing all this stuff. And you weren't getting paid for it. And I was like, no, no. You know, we looked at it. I got to run in Europe for uh, the summer and uh, it didn't cost me anything. It was like a hobby that paid for itself. But to get back to the mindset, uh, and it comes back to education. In those days, you ran track to get a college scholarship and you went to college. And then when you graduated from college, you you most guys retired because there was no support system unless you were a really big star um like a tom o'hara you you might have an after uh college career but it, it came at great sacrifice you either had to become a teacher so that you were finished work every day at three o'clock or maybe you sold uh, life insurance but you couldn't really get into a real career so uh, you know, the, and the attitude with my coach, J- uh, Jumbo Elliott, he never coached me a day after I got out of college. Uh, because as you kind of inferred, his attitude was, look, you've graduated. You need to get a job, start a family and have some kids. And I'm like, no, Jumbo, I think, uh, you know, I can run faster and I can make a few bucks doing this over in Europe. So, I, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, but I also, you know, remember distinctly feeling when I made the Olympics in 1968, I could calculate out that by the next Olympics in 72, I would have been out of college for a year. And I thought, I'm not going to make the team. I'll be out on my own for a year. 
and the new guys are going to come up. So you really didn't think long term like that. Don't look at Jim Ryan's career and, and, and think that's how it was for everybody because Jim was just so hugely big in the sport and the times he ran were just so huge. It would, it would have been, you know, crazy for him to stop. But he didn't really have a job when he got out of school. He was a photographer with a newspaper, which probably didn't, pay, you know, pay too much. Um, that's just the way it was in those days, real amateur stuff. And so you had this attitude that you felt like you had some more potential you wanted to give a shot to. And then was it immediately after Villanova that you um, moved to Gainesville? Right. Yeah, I actually, it's, I don't want to get into the whole long story, but I came down here. I was going to come down here for a year, use some postgraduate scholarship money I have to go to graduate school. And I came down here um you know, to train Frank Shorter had uh, just won the Olympics and he was here training. And this was uh, a place where some top runners were coming. You know, you needed people, good people to train with. And that was developing in Gainesville for the first time, much as, you know, years later, you've had that out in Oregon and in Boulder. But this was kind of the first place that that happened. And, and that's why I came down here. And then for a number of different reasons, I stayed here. So you, you sought out Gainesville because it was a good place to train and there were, it was a place where you could keep your running career going as you saw. Yeah. Yeah. But I chose Gainesville over say Eugene, other places because the journalism school was so good here. And uh, I, I looked at my future as being wanting to be in sports broadcasting. So that that was a reason. But Jimmy Carnes was down here and helping people get apartments. In those days, it would be very simple to attract good runners to your area. Just let them half think that you're going to help them, that you'll help them get an apartment or, you know, coach them. Uh, and and the people just came running. Well, like you said, as a if once you're out of school, you know, being a teacher, some kind of sales, something that allows you to keep a training schedule is the like you know the thing that made the most sense to do. But pretty quickly, you co-founded Athletic Attic. How much of a um, what the right word is here? Not a conflict, but how much of a how much of a strain was that on your ability to keep training? Well, it wasn't too bad because uh, Jimmy Carnes, the track coach at the University of Florida, was my partner. And our deal was that I would look after the business uh, during the school year while he was coaching. And then when I was in Europe, he would look after it. Now, that our plan there was we had one little athletic attic and the idea of franchising it hadn't come along, but yeah, I mean, I you know, I held a, a, a more than full time job doing that, and I was also doing a lot of broadcasting. And then the other thing, which is now really seems strange, but I was self coached. I coached myself, which was another mistake because I knew all the workouts, I had all the knowledge, I egotistically. And again, in 1975 and those years, there were not very many coaches in the, in the country 
who knew more about training than I did because I was over in Europe. I talked to John Walker. I, I saw what people were doing. And most coaches in the United States uh, didn't have the knowledge. I had the background of training under two great coaches. But and the mistake, and I point this out to the people who would be listening to this, is that I trained too hard. I didn't have somebody, I would say, I'm going to do 20 times 400 today in 62 seconds. And if I looked horrible at 16, I muddled through the last four, and maybe I got hurt. Whereas if I had a coach, he, they would have said, hey, uh, you know, you really need to pack it in today. You're, you're struggling or, you know, that thing in your Achilles is not going to go get better if you keep doing this. So not having a coach uh, hurt me in, in that respect. Coaches are usually going to be older than you and have had time to think about all the mistakes that they made in their career um, and help you to avoid that. I had a, you asked offline if I was friendly with any of my old competitors. And one of them that I am friendly with is Matt Sensiewicz Sr. And I said to Matt a couple of months ago, I said, Matt, these high school kids are all running so fast. And the guys out of college are running, you know, 13, 15 for 5,000, like it's no big deal. I know how hard we work to do that. I said, what in the past 40 years now, what is the mistake that we were making or what are they doing that we were not doing? And Matt said, basically, there's just so many more people with knowledge and because of the internet, everybody knows what everybody else is doing, what works, what doesn't work. And that I guess is the, is the biggest thing. Yeah. And you've written a few books on training. Um, and from what I, if I understand what, um, the Lacourie system in that you basically acknowledge that you have to make a decision when you're going to train seriously whether you're going to focus on a single optimized performance in the year, like the big one you call it versus staying in like a perpetual, um, just, just suboptimal fitness level where you can race pretty much any week of the year without actually reaching a little bit of a higher peak. Um, so it's sort of a trade off there and not that the one is necessarily right or wrong, but you just have to make that choice. So when you started coaching yourself, do you think at the time you were consciously making a decision one way or another in that respect? Well, yeah. Um, and, and that all goes back to the philosophy uh, of Jumbo Elliott, who was my coach at Villanova and partly being an American. So you can either try and win a lot of races all year, or you can maybe not race all year and peak for one big race. And in some cases that buildup might be two years where the guy doesn't run on the circuit the year before because he he's only pointing for the Olympics and Jumbo Elliott's philosophy. And of course it was a self-serving one was I would rather you win 12 races and lose one then you win the one big one and lose all those other 12. Because he was thinking pen relays, NCAA championships, the AAU. I, I, I look at it as Americans have a baseball, football mindset. We look at what a person's record is. Uh, Europeans don't look at it that way. 
they look at it as the Olympics or the European Championships or everything. You can be horrible the rest of the time. As long as you pull it out for that one big race, then you, you've had a great career. Um, so out of college, uh, and why one of the reasons I moved to Villanova, I tried to stay at Villanova for a little bit uh, of time, but the college guys, you can't say I'm going to stay at the college and work out with the guys because they're basing their training on r- winning a lot of races, the season being over at the end of June, and you're trying to peak for something at the end of August in Europe. So it's it's hard to you know train with the old college guys. And then you do have to make a decision. Do you want to win a lot of races or do you want to put all your eggs? And this is what Jumbo would say. I don't want you putting all your eggs in one basket. And then you're devastated when you get a cold be- before that one big race. So my philosophy was always to try and win a lot of races, which also meant I didn't try and set world records and run a fast time. I worked on my kick so that I would win races. Um, And that, you know, that goes along with it. Now, that being said, I knew when it was an Olympic year, 1976, let's say, that I would approach that year differently than than I would have in in 1975 with my workouts. So I could peak uh, for that one big race. But it's not as easy as doing that. It, it, it's it's almost a multi-year process to win something like an Olympic Games. So you just called the Olympics, you know, a big race. Um, and you're right about this mindset of baseball, football, what's your record mindset. I think I understand what you're saying with Americans. On the flip side of that, um, when I think the general public in the United States um, thinks about running, they think about, oh, you, you know, they do that at the Olympics and may not even be aware that there's non-Olympic competitions out there. So as from your perspective, as, you know, one of the best runners in the world, did you see the Olympics in the same way that the general public does as the ultimate competition or just one of many opportunities to compete? Right. I definitely did not see it as the general public does. And none of the top runners would because we all realize that you can turn your ankle the week before the Olympics. You can step on a piece of glass. In my case, I pulled a hamstring. We all realize the tremendous amount of luck that goes into uh, winning the Olympics. We also understand where drugs play a part in the Olympics at at this point in time. The dream of that was shattered in 1968 when they make Jim Ryan run against a guy he easily beat the year before at sea level, make him run against him at high altitude. So I don't think, you know, the, the athletes, my wife once said to me, you know, you never talk about your running. And I said, well, that's because there's only like 15 people in the world that I want to talk to about it. And those are the 15 guys I, you know, used to run against. And once in a while you'll get together with those guys and those guys understand how the sausages is made and how it works. So one of the first things all runners have to do, especially in running, but probably in all sports. Uh, and you know, this goes for music too. 
forget about what the general public thinks. They don't know, excuse me, shit from Shinola. And so don't, you know what is important. And the only people whose admiration that you really want uh, are the other guys or the other girls that you run, run against who know what you've done. I mean, uh, I, you know, I play music, so I went through this thing a, a second time. And in the case of music, I looked at it and said, no, I am not going to devote myself uh, to this like I did with running. I, I'm not going to go off the deep end. This is just a little bit of a hobby. But one of the things in playing music, especially jazz, and I told this with other guys I mentored, don't listen to that person that came out from the audience that said you you are a great guitar player or, or whatever. I said, because they don't know what they're talking about. The only one you want to hear that from is the guy that's 20 years older than you and is in the band. And when he tells you you took a good solo, then you know you took a good solo. But don't get all puffed up by these people who don't even play an instrument and are telling you you're a great guitar player. And it's the same way with running. You know, you can't go by some local writer who covers every sport, knows nothing about running and, and sees that, you know, I, when I was covering the Ironman triathlon, I would have these people contact me and say, you got to watch for this guy from my town because he's going to win. There's no way anybody can beat him. We see the workouts he does. He rides his bike hundred miles a day and he runs 13 miles a day. Well, I go to the Ironman triathlon and, you know, the guy finishes 140th with a personal vest. They just don't know uh, what it takes. And, and, you know, one of the things I think you didn't even ask this question, but I think it's a good question. What does running do for you? And what it does for you at a young age is shows that you can do something you thought was impossible. Like when I first ran and, and somebody was running a five-minute mile. I thought, man, that is impossible. But then I found out I could run four minutes. Yeah, it took four years of, of hard work. But you take that with you to many other things in life that you're going to be terrible at the beginning. And it was like this with me with music. I was terrible at the beginning. But I stuck with it, and I stuck with it, and, you know, I broke through. And Malcolm Gladwell's kind of covered all this with his 10,000 hours of preparation. And I think that um, there's a, a lot, he, he, he's right about a lot of things on that. Um, so to me, you know, whether somebody does succeed and get a college scholarship, success is still measured. And especially in, in track and field and running, you can measure it because you can look at times and say, I just ran a marathon in two hours and 30 minutes. And I started out at four hours, so I can achieve whatever I set my mind to. And now the next thing they have to set their mind to is getting their, you know, uh, accountant's degree or whatever else seems impossible or becoming a doctor, you know, which must, must seem pretty intimidating when you're a junior in high school and you decide you want to be a doctor. You know, that brings up an interesting, another interesting question about, um, the question of talent. I mean, you, you kind of alluded to the 10,000 hours it takes to be great at something. And then a lot of people also want to point to 
talent and most people would acknowledge well there's a combination of natural ability and lots of hard work to get somewhere um what i'm wondering is you know take you for example going from a five minute miler to a four minute miler um it almost seems to me like the real talent is the ability to put in the work that it takes yeah everybody's got a different level of natural ability but who has the ability to put in the work to differentiate themselves from the other good ones to be really great. So what do you think that you had and other people who become the best in the world at something? What, I mean, because everybody wants the, everybody wants to find out the method and the secret formula and like reverse engineer so that then I can do the same thing you did. And, and it's not that anybody discounts that, of course it takes hard work, but tell me how you did it. But what is it about someone that even gives them the ability to sustain that willpower for so many years? You know? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you may be re regurgitating what I already said in books. Um, but, you know, you're, you're right on the money. What was my talent? Um, I wasn't that good when I started out in high school, but I was fortunate in that I was at a very good high school with a great coach. And my, what was my talent? I, I learned out what my talent was uh, years later when I read Maxwell Maltz's Cyper-Cybernetics. Cyber, uh, my talent was the ability to focus, to put up with boring work, keep my nose to the grindstone. Um, so for many years, I thought my success had to do with hard work. Um, in later years, you've got to admit that, okay, my parents had something to do with it. Uh, I also had a talent for, even though people think of my two injuries, I, I didn't get that far because I was pretty un, not susceptible to injuries. And one of the great things about running, joining a running club, uh, is to be able, and you may not become the great runner in your community, but you will be able to observe people up close who are very successful in life. And the attributes that they have and the stick to Uh The story I would tell about talent is when I was in high school, I gave up music to, to pursue running at the advice of my high school coach. And I didn't think it was uh, that bad of an idea because I thought I wasn't a very good musician. And I, I could barely tune the guitar. I couldn't hear things that other people were hearing. And so I didn't play the guitar for about 40 years. And then I took it up and I started practicing many hours a day. Uh, eventually, you know, becoming a professional musician, playing several nights a week for many years. But what I learned was when I gave it up and thought I didn't have the natural talent, the reason I was not able to hear the other things that other musicians were hearing was I was training for an hour a day. I mean, I was practicing an hour a day. They were practicing six hours a day. And when I took the guitar up for the second time at about 40 years old and started playing four, four hours a day, lo and behold, I was actually somewhat talented as a musician. But it's not a magical talent. Yes, there are some people with perfect pitch um, and there are some savants that can listen to a Bach uh, etude and play it right back. 
But the vast majority, especially in something like jazz, which is sort of like running, it's just years of hard work before you sound like anything. And so I'm sure that happens with a lot of uh, artistic endeavors and, and things like, you know, becoming a doctor. You just have to keep your nose to the grindstone. There's a lot of, I mean, I can think of a lot of guys that were more talented than me in high school, but they didn't have, say, a supportive family or their family wasn't of the middle class family that could afford to let them train all summer. They had to go work in a local grocery store or stuff. So a lot of stuff goes into it. Uh, it's not a thing where, um, I mean, even with Stephen Prefontaine, we know he had a big heart and great uh, maximum oxygen uptake. But without all the work he put in, he would have just been another, you know, guy from Marshfield. So it seems like over the course of your career, starting in high school, you had several, you could say, summits that you've peaked. You know, the four minute, the third person to break four as a high schooler. Um, you know, then there's the decision. Do you do you go to college, try to do running there? Okay, you go to college, you climb kind of another summit. And then after college, the decision you kind of have to recommit yourself to keep going against the advice of your coach even. Um you know, the injury before the 72 Olympics, um, again, 76, and then like kind of re coming back in the 5,000. So it seems like several times you, you kind of peaked and then had to go into a valley and recommit to come back. Was, were there any of those, uh, low points where it was especially hard to decide to come back? Cause the comebacks kind of seems like a theme of your career. Was it any harder, any of those times to make that commitment? Uh, well, certainly in 1980, when they canceled the Olympics, that made it easier easier to retire. But I used to tell guys when they came to train with me, look, three months, four months from now when you're injured, don't you know come to me and act surprised. We train hard. We're going to get injured. That's part of the sport. And the difference between great guys and girls and mediocre ones are how you handle those injuries. So... Um, some people might pull a hamstring and say, Oh, I, I got a pulled hamstring. I'm going to, I got the time now I can, uh, work on my car or I got a lot of stuff I've been meaning to do. I, I got two weeks now because of my hamstring, but the champion guy is going to say, ah, I pulled my hamstring. I've been training for two hours a day. That means now I got to spend four hours a day on my running. I got to get a massage for an hour. I got in get in the whirlpool twice a day, half an hour at a time. Uh, instead of running for an hour, I got to swim for two hours. Uh, it, you're, you're really, the great guys are great because of the way they came back from injuries with which, you know, in those days, everybody gets. I, I should, I mentioned Matt Centrowitz earlier. The other thing he, he said, which makes a lot of sense is guys don't and girls don't get injured today like we did because people are smarter they know that when you've got this going on in your plantar fascia you cannot run through it you have to immediately stop and you know do this for a month uh so they're much smarter about injuries and spend less time injured earlier you mentioned those 15 guys that you ran against that those are the guys that you said know how the sausage is made and those are the guys that really know what it was like and they are the best at 
you know, stacking up and knowing who was who and who was what. Of those guys, were there any of them that, first of all, I, I was curious, um, are there any of those guys that you raced against but never beat? And then secondly, were any of those guys that were especially um, intense competitors or maybe more intimidating than the others? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anybody that I didn't beat at least once. I don't know. I never really thought about it that way. Um, the intense competitors I saw would be other guys at, at Villanova, guys like Dave Patrick, who wasn't the hardest guy in workouts, but in a race, they're just not going to give up. Uh, part of that was the ethos at Villanova. I think part of it was that when you're, we ran a lot of relays. And when you're on a relay team, you, you don't give up because you know you'd be letting three other people down. It's a lot easier to give up when you're just running for yourself. So the fact that Villanovans were running relays all the time uh, maybe made them a little tougher than, than, than some other people. Um, you know, even the toughest guys, if they've got a little bit of an injury, um, if they've had a bad year of training, they become quite human. Um, or there'll be other times, well, you know, when a guy will steal a race. Uh, I mean, I sold some races where guys thought I was injured and I was here in Gainesville training and I came to Europe and all of a sudden I was running really great. Um, so everything has to do with your life, how your life's going off the track also. Um, and for Americans, we have complicated lives, which makes it a little harder to focus. You know, we can't do what supposedly some Kenyans do where they get up in the morning and they run and then they sit around and talk and then they run in the afternoon and then they sit around and talk and then they run in the evening. Not many Americans can do that, although maybe some of the Nike sponsored athletes do that these days. That that would drive me kind of crazy. You know, when you look back at a lot of this stuff and say, gee, I wish I had the shoes they have today, you know, instead of me training in hush puppies or these tracks instead of running on a dirt track. But I also look at it and say that, gee, I'm, I'm glad I didn't come at, at a time when I would have to get a massage every other day. I'd have to get acupuncture every third day. I'd have to sleep in an oxygen chamber. I'd have to go to Mexico for January, February, and March and, and train at high, high altitude. You know, the, the stakes are higher the, these days, uh, but it's much harder to be successful. And I'm not sure that, that I would have paid that price. I wouldn't put everything else aside um, to just run. Did you have much of a relationship with any of your competitors off the track? Well, I, I, the ones who went to Villanova, yes, we were all very close. And uh, Uris Luzens and Byron Dice, who were great half milers, moved to Gainesville at the same time that I did. And I'm still friends with them today. They're still in, in town. But, uh, you know, before Facebook, um, it was hard to stay in, in touch with people. When I was on the tours in Europe and spent a lot of time in Europe, I, I was friendly with uh, Rod Dixon and Dick Quacks and um, 
not so much John Walker because he and I were, were going head to head, but definitely if a guy was in a different event, it was a little um, easier to be uh, friends with them. Uh, you said in a interview with Runner's World, um, I think in 2006, that you thought you were running the wrong event for most of your career, and you realized that after you moved to the 5,000. Um, and you alluded to the fact that uh, you were running high mileage. So did you mean that you you were training more like a 5,000 guy should, or did you mean more your natural ability lent itself more to the 5,000? Yeah, I mean, I can probably expound on this in very boring ways, but, you know, I never ran faster than the 48 second quarter, whereas, you know, uh, Jim Ryan would run 46 and Sebastian Coe 45. So I didn't have the speed to be a miler, but I'm number one in the mile in 1969, again in 1971. And if I go to the European meat promoter and say, I want to run a 5,000 meters, there's no money for that. They want me in the 1500. So I stuck with the 1500. And uh, and then at one point I did decide I was going to concentrate on the 5000. Oh, I remember the point. The point was after Philbert Bailly had beaten me in the mile in Jamaica and set the world record, and a month or two later, uh, John Walker beat me in the mile in Stockholm by a second or two running 352. Uh, I decided I might be able to beat one of these guys, but the next year at the Olympics, I'm not going to be able to beat two of them. And uh, at the last meet of the year in 75, uh, or uh, not the last meet, but one of the meets, Jim, uh, John Walker wanted to go after the world record in the mile. And he wouldn't let Rod Dixon and I in the race. So I ran, Rod and I both ran the 5,000 that night. John broke the world record after sitting on a pace setter. And uh, Rod and I ran a pretty fast time. And I said, well, this is pretty you know, easy. Uh, you jog hard for 11 laps and, and then maybe you, you kick. So the next year I tried to be a, a 5,000 meter man and I increased all my workouts and I, I really only got worse. So I went back to training like I did for the mile, but running the 5,000, but just the whole, my whole physiology, um, and my mindset, everything, I, I really was a 5,000 meter man, but by the time I went to it, it was kind of too late. And one of the things that happened was I ran a 1315 uh, in Europe and the world record was 1313. So I'm very excited about the next year because I know I can knock two seconds off pretty easily. Uh, but I'm, and I'm going to do this in the, the next July or August in Europe. And I get a call in April, uh, from my friend Barry Brown, he said, uh, um, the Kenyan guy in from Washington State just ran 1308 for the 5,000 meters, Henry, Henry Rono. And I said, oh, 1308 in April. And that was really discouraging for me because I thought I could improve two seconds, but I didn't think I could, you know, improve seven or eight seconds. He really put it out of sight. That, that was a discouraging morning getting that phone call. 
do you think it's fair to say that bridging the 1500 and 5000 like you did ranked number one in the world in both events is more rare than uh say a lot of guys will be you know 800 1500 guys or 5000 10000 guys do you think that combination is more rare than other combinations well yeah you could probably spend a couple of hours researching this uh yes it is because the mile you know it, it is the 5,000 is three times as long as the mile. And it's a totally different set of uh, physiology, I guess. Whereas when you run the five and the 10, it's, it's kind of a similar thing. And I may be wrong on this, but there's only been about five guys in history that have been ranked in the number one in the 1500 and the 5,000. And that would be Saida Wida, um, I think Kipkano, and um, the Tani- uh, the Moroccan, and and myself. So I'm the I'm the only non-African. Although I think a Belgian guy, like in 1948, was ranked number one and two. So I think there, if you look at the five and ten to answer your question, there's probably a majority of the time that the guy who's the best at the five thousand meters has also gone to a ten thousand meters and sat on everybody and out kicked them the last lap and it got the number one ranking. So that would be much more prevalent. And of course, 815, um, there are a lot of guys who have done that, including Jim Ryan. In the 15 or mile, is it, I, I think based on like a couple different things I've read and, you know, watching some of your races, is it accurate to say that, you were not a front runner, but also had to kick from further out. Like you weren't a last 200, 100 kick kind of a guy. You were more of like a 600, 800 to go kick kind of guy. But you also didn't want to take the pace out early. Is that accurate? Yeah. And uh, there were some reasons for that. Um, the only guy I idolized uh, coming out through high school was, was Herb Elliott. And he ran his races going from the 600 meters out. Um, I learned early on, and I can still remember guys uh, who, there were many guys who could outkick me in the last 100 meters um, on, the, on the national level and certainly on the international level. And so through the pounding on my head by my high school coach um you had to have i had to have the maturity to realize you know you can now kick all these guys in the united states but when you get over to europe with the big guys and this is something a lot of people don't realize you know holding american records and being an american champion is many steps below being number one in the world and beating all the Africans and the Europeans. And so I had to learn early on that when you get, when I got to the big race with the big 12 guys in the world, I was number 11 on the last hundred yards. So I better have a safety net uh, going into that. And that, that's kind of what, that's what happened with the famous race with Jim Ryan, knowing that you, I can't outkick him the last hundred. I have to, break him uh or at least have him very tired and make my move uh, a long time 
uh, before that. So, you know, that w- I was not a front runner because it was almost impossible in a mile to lead the first two laps and then win the race. Um, but my strategy, definitely, I wasn't a big kicker. Uh, as I say, I can still remember the names of the guys who embarrassed me in, in national championships or collegiate races when I got lazy and thought, like a Dave Waddle, you know, his last hundred was fantastic. Howell Michaels from William Mary, he was fantastic. They couldn't run close to the world record, although I guess maybe Waddle could have. But um, I, they're, they're just, I think there's a, a physiology, there's something that there's no amount of training that gives a person that lift the last 70 yards. That is kind of something that you're born with. And where the training comes in is for you to be able to be close enough to the pack to be able to use that kick. So for you, was there anything in particular in you in your training that you especially emphasized directly to impact your ability for a longer sustained kick? Or was it kind of just general, you know, the 15 miler, the just general aerobic strength or anything more specific than that? Well, I think that you can do track workouts and you can do them a number of ways. So a lot of people would say a basic workout for the a miler is to do 16 times 400 meters in six, 60 seconds. Well, if you go out and you run the first 200 in 28 seconds and the second 232, you're training yourself not to have a kick. So... Uh, even at Villanova. So we would be running the first 232, then picking it up and running the last 100, you know, very quickly. So always finish your intervals, increasing the pace, not slowing down. Um, little things like that, that you do do every day in workouts that help with your kick. But also, you know, the time uh, amount of time you spend doing short sprints is going to have uh, a big effect on what kind of a kick you have. Uh, when I was running against Jim Ryan, a reporter said, how long have you been preparing for you this race? And I said, all my life. Uh, and that's the thing, again, that the public doesn't understand. It's not like pro boxing where they announce that Muhammad Ali and Frazier are going to have a fight. So these two guys who have been sitting around eating bonbons for – nine months, go to training camp for a month, and they get in shape for the fight. A runner can't do that. You you have to be training 11 and a half months a year in case a big race pops up. Um, and so, you know, that goes back to your earlier question. How different is training of trying to run well from January to June in college from trying to uh, win the European Championships in the middle of July. It's very different. The, the workouts you do every day are going to be very different depending on what the goal is. So after, I know you already mentioned the the cancellation of the 1980 Olympics, which kind of screwed up everybody's plans, but, you know, putting that aside, did you ever have the thought of continue to progress up in distance 10,000 marathon yeah, that's a good question because what happened was road running was just getting started. Um, and 
I was getting invited to road races as a miler, like the Falmouth road race. I think I was at the second Falmouth road race and I would get, a, you know, a couple hundred dollars towards my expenses. And then I'd finish like 10th in the race. And the guys who were winning the race didn't get anything. And I, and I felt kind of bad and I stopped, you know, going to road races, uh, partly because of that. But also in those days, the mindset was like with my high school coach, don't you ever run a road race in the summer. You'll ruin your legs. Well, first of all, there was some truth to that because our shoes were so terrible, but you didn't mix road racing and, and, you know, being a track athlete. It was one or the other. And as far as the marathon, um, there was no money in the marathon and I couldn't see giving up, you know, what I was doing on the track to try and, and run a marathon. Uh, you mentioned I did run one. I did run New York City Marathon once. I knew that I was going to be doing the television commentary the following year. So I had a friend who wanted to qualify for the Masters at Boston. And I had a plan to run with him. But I said, I'll meet you when you come into Manhattan. I think it's 20 miles or whatever. And at the time, there were only about 10,000 people in the New York City Marathon. So I waited on the bridge until everybody had really left and started as the last person and just wound through the crowd. And I saw so many people that I knew because running was still kind of a small community then. And then I met up with my friend and, and ran with him through Central Park. And I don't know what I th finished in the race, but I know that I passed about 8,000 people. So for a while, that was probably the most people anybody had passed in a race. I think somebody's beaten that at this point. So were you were you running that pretty leisurely, or were you were you giving that your full efforts? Oh no, no, it was le leisure. I wasn't concerned about the time. My friend only needed to run like a three thirty to qualify for the Boston Masters division. So. And I think he did by a couple minutes. So that's probably what I ran. So that what you said about, you know, you didn't really mix track and road racing. Was that was that more of a cultural thing? Like, oh, you're either a track person or a road racer, or was it more just logistically? I didn't. It didn't make sense. You had to kind of pick just because you couldn't do both. Well, I think I hadn't thought about it, but yes, it was a cultural thing. Uh, road racers um, were usually out of college guys. Track guys were usually still in college. Um, but there was, you know, from my coaches, the attitude uh, that you can't run on the roads. It's going to ruin your, your legs. And, you know, as I said, I was wearing hutch puppies when I first started running in college because they were better than the running shoes. The running shoes were Converse, not Converse All-Stars. They had some kind of a, a track shoe. But, um, you know, there was – when I started Athletic Attic in 1972, it was going to be called Adidas Attic because Adidas shoes weren't really even sold in America in, in stores and I was an Adidas athlete and I was going to be able to get Adidas shoes over to the United States. So we had some pretty horrible shoes and uh, my feet show the effects of that today. So you were, 
in that plan, if it did become an Adidas attic, would you sort of would you have been sort of the Phil Knight as, as Phil Knight was to a Tiger or whatever the brand was at the time, the equivalent for Adidas? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this all, you know, happened shortly after the 72 Olympic Games. I came back with my connections with Adidas. I think that the athletic department in Eugene had already started. Uh, Jimmy Carnes, who was my partner, was selling Nikes out of the trunk of his car. Uh, so we were, if not the first Adidas or Nike account, maybe certainly in the top five Nike accounts. And the fact that Adidas lawyers contacted me and said, you can't use the name, was a great blessing because shortly after we opened the store, the running boom took off and Adidas could not supply enough shoes. We had to buy these Nikes that we really hadn't heard about. And Pumas and other shoes got us through the first first years because Adidas were so so hard to get. Back to the marathon. I know you were not a marathoner, but you trained with some marathoners and you commentated on the marathon. And what uh, this is a question I um, ask most people who do specialize in the marathon is, and it'd be interesting to get your take since you you never really specialized in it, but kind of on the other side how important do you think it is for a prospective competitive marathoner or someone who wants to maximize their marathon potential how important do you think it is to first maximize your potential in you know the vo2 threshold range of distances like mile to 10k say yeah i don't know uh that might be question for a physiologist because the marathon is just so much longer than certainly the mile of 5,000. They're not, that's not going to help you much in the marathon. And it's so much longer than the 10,000 meters that maybe the best way to, you know, go about it is, is consider the 10 K, uh, you know, your short distance and your sharpening and the marathon, you know, is your real distance. I, you know, being a four minute mile or, uh, is probably not going to help you much in the marathon. In fact, it would probably point to the fact that your your systems are geared towards whatever fast twitch fibers, if that's still even a viable thing to say, um, versus being a marathoner. Yeah. Um, going back to the Millimans, Jeff uh, wanted me to ask you is – I think he had heard a story about you guys in Florida getting stopped. Uh, somebody pulled a gun on you guys in Florida one time while you're running. Does that ring a bell? I did get a gun pulled on me when I was riding a motorcycle. Um, I'm not sure about that one. If okay. I was in that group. Yeah. Yeah. I did give somebody a hard time for coming up behind us and ringing their bell on their bike. I, I think I overreacted that almost, ended up in in a fight. <laughs> well, so speaking of fights, I mean, I read one profile of you that kind of described you in your early days as, you know, using a lot of tactic tactics on the track, like the elbows and the spikes and that kind of thing. Um, and then I think maybe, and I'm mixing up different books and articles, but it seems like maybe you said at one point in your later years, you sort of mellowed out and weren't 
as uh, intense on the track, but was there anybody that you raced against where it got a little more heated than with other people? Well, sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I was watching the Milrose games uh, this past week and you've got eight laps to the mile, the track, there's very little elbowing or banging into each other. And again, the younger generation has to realize that our tracks were 11 laps to the mile. The turns were a lot sharper and there was a lot more pushing, but also as soon as you go over to Europe um, and you got 11 guys from 11 different countries and every one of those guys has three reporters from his country following him. And it's very important to those countries. They, They are big stars. They are like, they're at the Super Bowl, and they're going to grab your shorts. They're going to, you know, push through you, do whatever they have to do um, to win the race. Well, one time uh, I was in Italy, and they had a guy, Francesco Race, who was really good. He was the European champion, and they would bring me to Italy to run against them. So uh, we get in the, on the track, and there's 16 guys, and – they put me out in the 15th spot and he's on, on the pole or like two or three and the gun goes off and he's right there on the pace setters. And I have 13 guys that they're basically their job was to just hit me. And the same thing happened to me in Japan some years later. Uh, but I realized with Italian history, there's a thing called the paleo in Siena, which is a horse race. And over the years, the people, who know that their horse can't win the race in that century, let's say. They make deals with the other clubs to go after the top competition so they can win and then they pay back. So I realized the Italians had done this purposely. And I went back the next year to race. And, of course, the first time a race they beat me because I was dead by the time I got to the final straightaway. So the next year they tried to do the same thing. They had me out in 15th row and I walked over to race and I grabbed the shirt and I said, I'm starting right here. And of course the Italians are throwing up their arms and discussed it for like five minutes. And then finally the race goes off and now it's a, you know, fair race and, and I ended up winning it. Well, go forward 40 years. Francesco recently, he owns Carhu shoes now. And he recently came out with a special shoe celebrating the 40th anniversary of him winning the European championships. And what I didn't realize back then, um, and he's told me since, is that every time he ran against me, even though he was losing, he was setting Italian and European records. So I'm like this, you know, big thing in his life. And uh, so, you know, we're really great friends. And I got these shoes that he made that uh, commemorate his victory uh, 50 years ago in the European championships. But yeah, that was that. There was a guy, there was a guy, uh, people are just on Facebook giving me a hard time about this, but there was a guy from Poland that came to Madison Square Garden. And I knew from his previous races that just before the start of the last lap, he would cut in very sharply and make you... uh, cut your stride so you didn't step on his feet. But once you broke your stride with a hundred meters to go, you weren't going to catch this guy who had great acceleration. 
So I knew he was coming. I knew he was going to do this. And before he was able to cut in on me, I put my arm, and I learned this at Villanova from the best, I put my hand on his hips and pushed him out. And he kind of did like what they would call in basketball today a flop and almost went off the track. And I got disqualified, but then I was reinstated. But, you know, the people today – they, they have a picture because at the finish line, I turned around and I was pointing at him and they were online saying, oh, yeah, Marty had his fist raised and he threw a punch. And I said, come on, guys, you, you look at the pictures. I said, I have never punched anybody or been in a fight in my life. You know, it's a little different on the track. But to get back to your question, no, I don't think I mellowed at all. You knew the players. You knew who would step on the back of your heels if they had to, and if they did it on purpose or by mistake. Um, so there was just, you know, the other extreme of that is in that first Olympic trials we talked about earlier, there were some three Oregon guys in there and Roscoe Devine was one of them. And we're coming up to the bell lap and Roscoe's boxed in. And he says, uh, Hey guys, let me out. And there's like three guys from New York schools in front of him. And you can imagine what they said. So he didn't get out. But what people didn't know, again, this goes back to the sausage. Some of those mile races out in Oregon where they had three guys breaking four minutes, A, they had a pace setter. The pace setter or the guys in the lead moved out to the second lane and let you pass on the inside. So that adds up to tenths of a second at the end of a race versus doing it in a race where you got seven guys who totally dislike you and are just going to make it as hard as possible for you to win the race. So there's four minute miles and there's then again, there's four minute miles. When did pace setting even become a thing that was done? You uh, mentioned John Walker, not letting you guys in the race and using one, but. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, I And I called my high school coach, who was one of the guys closing in on the four-minute mile, after I read that great book about Wes Santee and Roger Bannister and uh, John Landy in the pursuit of the four-minute mile. And I said to Fred Dwyer, I said, Fred, Roger Bannister in 1954 had two pace setters in the race, pace setters, were not legal. They're not, you know, in the 70s, 80s, when I was running, the pace setter is not allowed in the race. The race would not be counted as a world record. I said, wasn't Landy upset? Didn't anybody call him out on that? And he said, Marty, it was like Roger Bannister was like the guy who conquered Mount Everest. Nobody wanted to hear from us little guys that there was a technicality about it. You know, so they let it slide. But in Europe, in my day, uh, if you had a pace setter, you really had to hide him well. I mean, he had to finish the race and make it look like he was in the race and he just had a bad day. So there, there weren't pace setters. And, and the, the sport was much more interesting to me when it was a race. And, and now it's sort of like greyhound racing. There's a dog. There's a whatever they put out there, a rabbit. Mm, I guess that's where they got the term. There's a rabbit that everybody's chasing in a single file. So what you're measuring today is 
what is a guy's oxygen capacity? What is his form like? Does he have the ability mentally to push through the pain? But you're not taking into account his spatial awareness of, is he boxed in with a lap to go? Is he in front when he knows he doesn't have a kick? You know, all these other things have been been taken away. Well, we're right about an hour and a half. So I've got, I've gotten through my whole list. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this, but, and as much as the insights into training and racing uh, philosophy are, I mean, this has been surprisingly a great history lesson. I mean, it's really cool to hear the, from someone on the inside, how the history of these types of things play out. So I really appreciate you taking some time today.